they don't technically fly, they glide. And they use this to parachute out of trees and onto the ground. There's some really amazing variations on the general theme of frog. This is Not What You Think. I'm Zesha Rosen. When I think about amphibians, I probably think of like Kermit, maybe spirited away, toad kissing, and then I seriously start to think about how bad I am as a biologist. But in real life, frogs and other amphibians get even weirder than playing the banjo, frog spirits, and interspecies kissing. Jody Rowley is curator of amphibian and reptile conservation biology for the Australian Museum and the University of New South Wales. She specialises in frogs. Jody, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. How many kinds of amphibian are there? Well, there's about seven and a half thousand species of amphibian and they fall roughly into three groups. There's the frogs and toads, which you tend to think of, and that's over six and a half thousand of them. So the vast majority of amphibians are the normal amphibians that we think of. Then there's newts and salamanders. A lot of people confuse them with reptiles, except that they have smooth skin. They don't have scales. They don't have claws. They have the moist skin that you characterise of a frog, sort of permeable skin, and they live in the same kind of places. You'll find them under logs and things during the day. They look kind of like big squishy lizards. Yeah, big squishy lizards is quite a good way. Some of them are small squishy lizards too, really small. They've got four legs and a tail, which is the big difference. Frogs don't have tails. And then the third group is even stranger, and most people have never heard of them, and they're the Sicilians. They're burrowing worm-like amphibians, kind of like a worm, a little less shiny. Worms have that weird shiny kind of sheen to them. They are less bandy. If they open their mouth, you can see rows of teeth in, so that's very different. The other thing, they've got very reduced eyes, so they've just got tiny little black dots on their head basically where their eyes used to be because you don't need eyes when you're underground. But what you do need is they've got little tentacles, little feely tentacles on their face, which potentially makes them look more alien-like. They use these to sniff out the earthworms that they eat. I actually had never seen one until about 10 years ago. And I was desperate to see one as an amphibian biologist. I really wanted to see this third type. I have only ever seen two Sicilians in my life because they spend most of the time usually underground or in the water, but particularly in Asia where I've done a lot of work, they live under the ground, eat worms. So the only time you will see them is when it's raining, they get to come up to the surface. And so there are these three major categories. There's frogs and toads, there is newts and salamanders, and I think mud puppies are are in that group. Yes, there are some really cool names, American in particular. There's mud puppies, there's hellbenders, and sometimes they call them snot otters. So there's some absolutely fantastic names for some amphibians. Hellbender is my all-time favourite name for an amphibian. And like all amphibians tend to be a bit gooey, I suppose, or kind of squishy because that's kind of how they breathe. Uh, Yeah, so most amphibians, toads a little less so, they tend to have much more dry skin. They have a permeable skin and they use this very differently to we use our skin. It absorbs things in and out. That includes water. So frogs and other amphibians don't drink. You'll never see them lapping at a pool. They just actually absorb the water through their belly skin. They've got a thing called a sort of a drink patch is what the area is called. And they just sit in puddles on their belly. They just sit in puddles and the water goes right in. And they also breathe a lot through their skin. In fact, there's quite a few salamanders and a few frogs that are lungless. So they don't need to bother with these lung things. They just absorb everything they need through their skin, which is fantastic. But it actually makes them a lot more vulnerable to things like pesticides and pollution because they sit in a puddle and everything kind of gets sucked right in, whether that's pesticides or pollution or water. 
there are a lot of types of, of just frogs, like not even other amphibians. And there's a lot that we don't know of. So at the moment, there's about six and a half thousand different kinds of frogs and toads that we know of globally. There's, you know, the good old toad that we think of and the frog, but that just doesn't even describe the amount of diversity that's out there. I work a lot in Australia and in Southeast Asia. And some of the frogs that I see over there, when I first went over to Southeast Asia, I had to learn everything again. And I had absolutely no idea what any of them were. The diversity was astounding and completely unknown to me. And, and we're talking about like, you know, different species. This is more than just brown frog, brown frog with spots. Like there are some really weird variations. There are. Around the world, there's some really amazing variations on the general theme of, of a frog. One of the groups of frogs that I work at are actually called flying frogs. And they don't technically fly, they glide. So they're more like a, a glider. They have huge hands and feet that are webbed all the way up to the tips and even usually a little bit of flaps on their forearms. And they use this to parachute out of trees and onto the ground in Southeast Asia. Amazing adaptation to living in the canopy. This is only one of the many, like, there are uh, frogs with, with different coloured blood. Is, is that normal? It's not normal, but it's pretty amazing. There's three little green frogs, one of which my colleagues and I discovered from Vietnam and surrounding areas that actually have green blood due to a bile pigment. They have turquoise bones. They lay their eggs on tips of leaves where they turn into tadpoles and then drop into the pools below. And they have a crazy, crazy call. So instead of repeating the call sort of like rant, rant, rant over and over again, which is generally what frogs do, these guys have what's known as a hyperextended vocal repertoire. And all that means is that basically they sing like birds. They don't have the same call over and over again. They're saying all sorts of weird, clicky, chirpy, whistly things. They definitely say more than your average frog. The frog that sings like a bird, its scientific name is Grisixilis quangi. It sounds almost like a squeaky bicycle tire. <laughs> Yeah, that's one way of putting it. It's, it's quite a quiet call as well. And these frogs are tiny. They're, you know, about two centimetres body length, green, almost sort of transparent green, sitting in a sea of green in these beautiful evergreen forests. So imagine in the middle of the night in a stream in a forest and hearing this call in the distance and having to find these guys. The big problem is frogs tend to shut up straight away when you get near them. So that's a lot of standing in the dark and waiting for them to call again so you can pinpoint where they are. And if you were another frog, that's kind of a sexy call? Well, that's the idea. So only male frogs call, and they're calling to predominantly to attract females. So it's a, I'm sexy, I'm the best frog here, females, come and get me. They usually call from near ponds or streams or wherever they want to breed, swamps sort of in this case. And the female is the one that chooses in the most frogs, so she'll go up to whichever one th she thinks is better. Frogs sometimes do some creative things to make themselves sound better. Sometimes the bigger frogs are preferred. So males, you'll hear them calling from drain pipes and PVC pipes and things like that, which is, I think, it makes them sound a lot bigger and tougher and louder. So the female frogs will be tricked into it. So often green tree frogs in Australia will be calling from these drain pipes, and that's not a coincidence. The other thing that frog calls do sometimes is they're a bit territorial. So not only saying girls come here, but boys get away. So especially if they've got a good breeding site right near them, they've got a nice bit of water, a little pool, then they will also potentially have some boys get away noises and they might even fight with each other as well. And some frogs actually have some weapons. You think that frogs are pretty benign, but 
Some Australian frogs, like the giant burrowing frog, Helioporus, actually has big spikes, like dog collar spikes, big black hard spikes on its thumbs that it develops only during the breeding season and actually wrestles and potentially disembowels competitor males. So there are actually a lot of frogs with some kind of weapon for fighting each other. They're pretty innocuous to us, but if the boys start fighting, then they might have fangs or they might have spikes that they can use. There's also one that barks. Yes. So I guess there's probably a lot of frogs that sound a little bit like barking, but one of the frogs from the central highlands of Vietnam, Brachytarsifrees, which is a type of horned frog, it's essentially an enormous mouth with little legs. This thing is a sit and wait predator, so it sort of just sits there and waits for any insects to crawl in front of its face. But when you're in the forest at night, and sometimes during the day these guys call, you can just hear like a dog barking from under these giant boulders in the rainforest. And that is these amazing frogs. I guess we're all taught the frog life cycle at school, and that is the frogs get together, external fertilisation, they lay eggs in a pond or a stream, and usually there's hundreds or thousands of eggs, and then both of the adult frogs hop off in different directions and they don't pay attention to their babies. While most frogs generally do that, there is some amazing diversity in reproductive sort of modes and how they do things. And some frogs are actually really diligent parents, which is what we don't really think. There's a species called the vampire flying frog, which my colleagues and I discovered in the mountains of southern Vietnam. It's a type of flying frog, and so it lives in the trees, and it's taken living in the trees to the next level. It doesn't come down to breed. It doesn't need to fly out of the trees to breed in these temporary pools. It actually uses these tiny little water holes in the trunks of trees because it's quite a wet forest. If a branch falls off and leaves a little hole, it fills with water. They lay their eggs in these little tiny bits of water, but there's nothing for their tadpoles, their babies, to eat. So the mother actually comes back to these little water-filled holes and feeds her babies unfertilised eggs. And their special adaptation for eating these eggs is that they have big curved black fangs sticking out of their mouths and they sort of use these fangs to stab the egg and swallow it. Hence the name Vampire Flying Frog because they've got the coolest mouth of any tadpole that I know with these black fangs. Other frogs skip tadpoles altogether and they have baby frogs emerging out of the eggs, so all the development's done within the egg stage. Some others give birth to tadpoles, so somehow they have internal fertilisation. Others carry their tadpoles on their backs to new places. Others build nests for them on the forest floor in order to protect them from predators. So there's some amazing diversity. Frogs are really, really varied creatures. But at the same time, when you're in the field looking at frogs, like, I assume you're a scientist, you can tell the difference. Does that work? Sometimes I feel like I'm not a proper expert because I'll get in the field and I don't know. So frogs haven't always developed into really different looking forms. And so in the last decade or so, when we've been not just looking at the way the frog looks, we've also been incorporating DNA evidence and also recording the calls and comparing them. We're realising that we've been missing a whole bunch of diversity in frogs and other amphibians. Just because two frogs look pretty similar doesn't mean they are the same species. Frogs don't go by appearance a lot, so the calls are really important because females don't want to mix up and get the wrong species. That's, that's a waste of everyone's time and effort. Frogs generally have very different calls. So you'll find two brown frogs or two green frogs that you, as a human, 
think, ah, that looks pretty much the same. But of course, frogs don't meet their mate by that looks pretty much like me. They probably use pheromones, they use calls, they use all sorts of behaviour that humans are too clumsy to see or we don't spend enough time paying attention. So I might think that I find one species of small brown frog in the forest and I'll get back and I'll look at the DNA and I'll look at the call recordings and I will discover that there are three. And this is a big problem for conservation because we need to know what is where in order to prioritise our conservation efforts. And presumably to know what's missing as well. How do you identify a frog? Could you walk me through the process? Some of it is definitely appearance and it's where it is. And if we've got a very well-known frog fauna, so around Sydney, there's some frog books. You can, for the most part, key them out according to their colour, their size, their toe pads, usually whether or not they have toe pads, how much webbing they have between their toes, these sorts of things. It's pretty good for most frogs. When you go into relatively poorly known forests and some of you know these remote places like the mountains of Vietnam where I spend a lot of time, you do a pretty good job for what you can in the field, but then it does take some looking at things like DNA and calls to actually get things really right down to it. Because species discovery in these parts of the world is so rapid, we're discovering several new species a year at least, it is hard to identify them if you don't keep up with all of the scientific papers that are published. There is an online resource called Amphibian Species of the World, which is really handy and it gives you very up-to-date figures on how many species are where and all the information about them. The listings in that can go back a long way. Some of them are from the 1750s. Well, that's some of the difficulty in actually identifying frogs and in describing new species is because people have been working in this area for hundreds of years describing species and... A hundred years ago, the level of detail in a species description, the formal description was not what it is now. It might be a couple of sentences, a paragraph and a black and white line drawing. We didn't have or take DNA then. We didn't take call recordings. We don't have colour photographs in life. So we're relying on these museum specimens that were collected a hundred years ago. Thankfully, they're still, in most part, really good quality, but a lot of the colour fades over time. And so sometimes it can be really tricky to prove that a species is different from another species, even though you might have a pretty good idea that it's new. Are there any species we have specimens of we don't have anymore in real life? That's terribly sad, yes. So around the world, a lot of species of amphibian have become extinct, probably at least several dozen. There's three to four, at least, depending on which list you look at, that have become extinct in Australia and there's several more that haven't been seen for decades, so are most likely extinct. One of the most precious frogs in the Australian Museum collections is the gastric brooding frogs, two species of frogs with a funky name, because the males used to eat their eggs, turn their stomach juices off beforehand though, so they didn't digest them. The eggs would then develop into little baby frogs in the stomach of the males, and then the male would open his mouth and little baby frogs would pop out. Now, these guys were very aquatic species that lived in the forests in Queensland, and unfortunately, not long after they were described, they became extinct, and we haven't seen them since the 80s. So these frogs are now only known from museum specimens, unfortunately, but they're an incredibly valuable resource for us to study. Unfortunately, losing the frogs themselves in the wild, not only is that just a terrible situation for Australia's heritage, but it potentially has lost us some more sort of selfish medical advances as well. So these frogs had the ability to turn off their stomach juices. How do we do that? 
that might have massive implications for things like treating stomach ulcers. And so with every frog that we lose, we lose these amazing abilities that actually might have some benefit for our own health as well. One of the reasons that a lot of frogs have died off or are in danger of dying off is this fungus. What's the fungus called? What's the deal with it? The amphibian chytrid fungus, Patracochytrium dendrobatidus, is its name, and I have to say that because I spent so long perfecting it during my PhD that I try and get it out whenever I can. It's a really strange type of fungus that affects amphibian skin. Because they use their skin for respiration, for salt exchange, for water, it's kind of their Achilles heel. So something that affects them, this fungus, buries into the skin and eats the keratin in the amphibian skin. And they're not too sick if they've just got a little bit of it, just like if we had some kind of infection on a a little bit of our skin. But once it starts affecting a lot of their skin and it can spread really fast through these essentially zoospores, uh, which are like almost little sperm, they have a little tail and they go back into the skin of the frog. It's kind of terrifying. Then their whole breathing and everything system breaks down and they essentially die of a heart attack. So we first noticed these sort of mysterious declines in the 80s. And while habitat loss is is a massive driver for frog amphibian declines in general around the world, what was most puzzling was that some of these frog declines that we were observing back then were in the most pristine or apparently pristine places. They were in the cloud forests of Costa Rica. They were in the wet tropics of Australia in these protected areas. We came to realise that it was this type of skin fungus, this newly discovered species at the time. We'd never heard of this thing before. Usually these type of fungus don't affect vertebrates. So they don't affect any animals. Usually it's plants or insects, not vertebrates. This has got to be a similar kind of, we're freaking out, where did this come from feeling like with Tasmanian devils and their cancer? We didn't know this was a thing. Are they all going to disappear? Exactly. And it was terribly alarming. It caused the extinction of many species around the world and massive population declines in others. So in some parts of Central America, for example, where you would usually go to the stream and you'd be surrounded by the calls of dozens and dozens of frogs, like some of these places are really diverse, you would then, within a matter of months, go up to the stream and be greeted by silence and maybe a couple of frogs hanging out. What's the likelihood this is going to get rid of most of our frogs? It's gotten rid of some, but, and it certainly is still having an effect on populations because it sticks around in the water and I don't know how you get rid of something once it's there, particularly in these complex environments. What would we lose if they disappeared? Unfortunately, from places in Central America, we do know what happens, at least when the diversity and abundance of frogs declines dramatically. And it's terrifying, quite frankly. So the streams that used to be full of all these different kinds of tadpoles breaking down algae they now clogged with algae because the tadpoles are gone. All the animals that rely on these tasty morsels of protein, these frogs and other amphibians, are now starving. There's tons of reptiles, birds and mammals that rely on frogs, or at least have frogs as a big part of their diet, that are then not able to eat and are starving in these systems. And it seems like even years, years and years after these declines that the ecosystems haven't recovered Nothing fills the role of frogs when they're gone, which is really terrifying. We end up with much poorer ecosystems. But there's some good news in that a lot of frogs seem to be now recovering. The ones that didn't get driven completely to extinction are now recovering. So some of the frogs that declined from high elevation in the wet tropics are now coming back up the mountain. And some of the frogs that we thought potentially were extinct in Central America and in Australia, we're actually rediscovering small populations of them. 
So there definitely is hope, but amphibian chytrid fungus really hit our frogs hard. There are selfish things like all the medicinal properties that frogs have on their skin that have been explored for use from antibiotics, antivirals, contraceptives, all sorts of crazy things. Uh, but also just for the ecosystems, nutrient cycling, healthy ecosystems that will then help support us. So potentially reducing mosquito populations so that we're less likely to get Zika virus or dengue. There's all sorts of side benefits that we get from frogs aside from just, man, frogs are awesome. I mean, I want my children's children to go to a stream and be able to hear a diversity of frogs calling. It's an amazing experience. And I think we should all have the ability to do that now and into the future. It's, it's a privilege. It's a special thing. Looking after your local area is a big thing, not adding stresses to the frogs in terms of pollution or removing vegetation from streams. Local streams and ponds are incredibly important. But also I think just thinking of frogs and that's something that you maybe don't do so often when you live in the city and you don't go out in the streams at night like I do. You forget that frogs are around and when you think of an endangered animal, you might think of pandas or rhinos, the fluffy things. Or, or even the pretty frogs. Well, yeah, there's the pretty frogs and then there's the not so pretty frogs and they're a really important part of our environment. One third of all amphibian species are threatened with extinction. They're in a lot of trouble. I guess I beg people to think of frogs and other amphibians when they think of endangered animals and, and act local, look after your local waterways and help the frogs that are still able to persist. Jody, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. You can find out all sorts of things about frogs at Jody's website and hear some awesome frog noises at the Australian Museum website as well. We'll put a link up to both of those things on our show page and in the podcast notes for this episode. We have a podcast. Is there something you think we should be making a show about? There's a link on that page for you to tell us all about it. If you like us, you'll probably like a bunch of other great FBI podcasts. Choose some at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Know What You Think is produced by Olivia Perry-Griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. Show art by Annie Hamilton. Linda DeLacy is production consultant and executive production is by Samira. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland and me. I'm Zasha Rosen. Keep listening for our next episode.